Well, good morning, family. Take your Bibles, if you would, if you haven't already, and open to the book of Daniel chapter 9. As the disciples followed Jesus around, they were constantly in amazement. Amazed at Jesus for, no, for, for all kinds of reasons, but one that especially intrigued them was how Jesus prayed. So much so that one day the, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. The result was actually some of the verses Pastor Aaron read earlier this morning, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. It really was the prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples, not as some mantra to recite over and over, not some formula to repeat, but rather He gave it to be a pattern to follow, an example to emulate, a model for how we should pray. In the past few weeks, we've been here in the book of Daniel. We've looked at the first six chapters and we have seen what an extraordinary man Daniel was. Daniel serves as a model for us, an example for how we are to live godly lives in the midst of a godless culture. Last week in chapter 6, we saw that, that Daniel was a man of committed and consistent and fervent prayer. I was blessed with a very godly grandfather, actually godly grandparents, but I'm picking on my grandfather. Still today, he is probably the most godly man I've ever had the privilege of knowing. And I've had the privilege of knowing an awful lot of godly men. My granddad had a huge heart for Jesus. He was a man of much prayer. And I remember as a young boy, several times as granddad was praying, sometimes at the dinner table, other times just as we were gathered around, and he would pray. And I remember at times just kind of opening my eyes, which was a big no-no, you know, if you were grew up in the church, uh, and, and taking a peek around to see, because I was just sure that Jesus had somehow come into the room. Such was the prayer as my grandfather would lead us before the throne of grace. I'm inclined to think that if you and I had had much opportunity or any opportunity to spend much time with Daniel, that we probably would someday have wanted to ask Daniel the same thing that the disciples did when they came to Jesus that day and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. I, I think... You and I with Daniel would have gone, would have said, hey Daniel, teach me how to pray like you pray. At least from my experience with my grandfather, it's a powerful thing. And something that I still, I am not, you know, Pastor Aaron said we need to come honestly here and I agree. And I, 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 I struggle in this. I am not a man like my grandfather in prayer. I'm not a man like Daniel in prayer. 
But as we come here to chapter 9 of Daniel, as we saw in chapter 6, he was a man of prayer. There we saw his consistency in prayer, his devotion to prayer. But here in chapter 9, we're going to have the opportunity to listen in and to listen to Daniel, to observe Daniel as he prays. And what we will discover is that like in everything else we've been seeing as we've been looking at the story of Daniel's life here in these chapters, we're going to see once again a pattern, a model, an example for us to follow. Daniel's prayer is powerful and this morning I want to call our attention to three elements of this powerful prayer that I think you and I can incorporate into our own prayer life to make us more effective prayer warriors. Verse 1, chapter 9 of Daniel. In the first year of Darius, or Darius, the son of Ashuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, what must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Daniel informs us here that this takes place in the first year of the reign of Darius. If you were here last week, in chapter 6, what you would discover, if you look at the heading for that chapter, you'll figure out that you're in the same year. It's the first year of this king's reign. So this experience here in chapter 9 takes place in the same year as Daniel in the den of lions. We don't know when in that year, first year of Darius's reign either of these happened, but it was in the same year. But what I want us to gather from these opening verses, especially is this, is what is it that occasioned Daniel to launch into this powerful prayer? What motivated, what moved him to pray? And the answer we read there is in verse 2. Daniel was reading the books, or literally the scrolls, that were written by Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah. What that tells us is that what moved Daniel to pray is Scripture. Scripture moved him. Jeremiah was an older contemporary of Daniel. What I mean by that is that they, they lived at somewhat the same time. They overlapped times, but Jeremiah was older than Daniel. Jeremiah began his prophetic office, his preaching ministry, uh, approximately 20 years before Daniel was born during the reign of Josiah, the, the last of the good kings of Judah. He began preaching then. He was still preaching then, 20 years later when, or so, when Daniel was born. Jeremiah was still preaching. He was still in ministry in the year 605, as Daniel is probably a young teenager, when Nebuchadnezzar brought Judah into subjugation and he took the best and the brightest of the young men, including Daniel, back to Babylon. 
Jeremiah is still ministering. He's still ministering almost ten years later, 597 B.C., when there was a uh, some of the Jews rebelled against Babylon, and once again Babylon comes in and once again defeats Judah. And that time they take around sixty thousand Jews captive back to Babylon. Jeremiah is still in ministry again almost ten years later, 586 B.C., when there is one more final little rebellion, short rebellion from some of the Jews against Babylon. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar sends his armies. This time, he destroys the kingdom. He destroys and levels the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. Jeremiah is there, sees the whole thing, and that is when Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations as he laments and weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem, over the carnage of people, and especially over the destruction of the temple. And that time, almost all of the surviving Jews are hauled off to captivity in Babylon. A few are left. And among them was Jeremiah the prophet. Now Jeremiah is somewhat older than Daniel. Jeremiah is separated from Daniel. I think, however, that Daniel probably had occasion. Uh, well, he would definitely, growing up as a young as a young guy uh, in Judah at that time, he would have known who Jeremiah the prophet was, and probably had occasion to hear Him teach, to hear Him preach. But 66 years later, apparently, some of the scrolls or the the books that Jeremiah wrote make it to Babylon and into Daniel's hands. Daniel is a man of the Word of God. Much of what's in the prayer finds parallel in some other Old Testament passages, and especially I see it in the, in the dedication prayer of Solomon at the, at the temple. But he's a man of the Word of God, but here he gets his hands on the Word of God through the prophet Jeremiah. And apparently he hasn't read it before. He is enthralled. Daniel has studied God's Word and now he studies the Word of God through Jeremiah. Daniel is not a guy who just has a copy of the Word of God and it spends its time on the shelf. He doesn't just have a copy of the Word of God that he carries around on his iPhone, but he never actually opens the app and reads it. That's not Daniel, that is us. Daniel instead, he studies the Word. And he pours over this book and he discovers something phenomenal. Here's a bit of what Jeremiah wrote that Daniel read. Jeremiah chapter 25. Obviously, they didn't have chapter and verse markings back then, but we do now. It helps us find things. Here's what Je- Jeremiah wrote. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after the seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon 
and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. Then over a few chapters later, Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah wrote this, Thus says the Lord, When the seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And a verse you probably have heard. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Daniel reads these words and starts doing the math. God has said that we will be in captivity, that the Babylonians will rule over us seventy years. Daniel is saying, you know, I've been here 66. Just maybe this is coming to an end real soon. Now, Daniel was the first, as we mentioned, the first wave of captives to go to Babylon. It was another decade when more went and another decade before most everyone ended up in Babylon. When does the clock start ticking? Daniel doesn't know, but what he realizes is time is limited. Seventy years. And it may be coming soon. Daniel studied Scripture, so he discovers this reality and he's excited, but and he responds. But Daniel's response isn't to start packing his bag. He doesn't start getting his stuff together and say, I'm going back home. Nor does Daniel throw a, hey, you know, we're going home party and send out invitations and invite a few hundred of his favorite Jewish friends and say this is about over. His response isn't that at all because he reads carefully. Not only, he didn't stop reading when he wrote there in, in Jeremiah 29 that it was going to be 70 years. He kept reading verse 32 of Jeremiah chapter 29 and it says this, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, God promises to bring His people back to the land after 70 years. But Daniel carefully notes that God will accomplish, He will fulfill His Word to restore Israel only in response to the prayer of His people as they call upon Him. And so Daniel sets out to do just exactly what this Scripture calls for God's people to do. Daniel responded to the Scripture by being obedient to it. He's not just a student of God's Word who's like a big jug that just takes it in. You know, there's a danger in that that you and I can be that way. We're God's people. We say we love God. We love His Word. And we just take God's Word and we just we just become knowledgeable about what God says. So we come and listen to sermons. We go to Sunday school. We go to Bible study. We listen to the Christian radio. And we take stuff in. And we fill our minds with all kinds of stuff. 
knowledge about the Word of God, but it makes no difference in our life. That's a danger. Daniel is not that guy. Long before James ever wrote these words, Daniel took it to heart. Be doers of the Word, not hearers only. He's been reading. He read there that God is going to respond to the prayers of His people and this moves him to pray. Acting on God's Word was not something new for Daniel. Last week in Daniel chapter 6, we saw again that Daniel was this man of fervent, committed, faithful prayer. And that every day, three times a day, he would break from whatever he was doing. He would go to his room. He would get on his knees with the windows open facing Jerusalem and he would pray. Why did he do that? Because Daniel studied Scripture. And Daniel knew some passages from the Old Testament. Back as I mentioned the, the dedication of the temple, it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's also recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And at the dedication of the temple, King Solomon prays. He prays a marvelous and a lengthy prayer. Let me show you something that he prayed. He says, if they, the people, sin against you, God, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, if they repent with all their mind, with all their heart in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive, and they pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house, the temple, that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. He says, when they get in a place where they don't listen to you, and you do what you promised to do to Moses in Deuteronomy, where you're going to take them out of the land, if that happens, then God, when that happens, if they pray to you, and they look towards this place, and this city, and this temple, and they pray to you, would you hear them, and will you forgive them? Interestingly enough, in the next chapter, God answers Solomon's prayer, and God says this, again, words many of you have probably heard before, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, Daniel was already, we saw last time, he was already in the habit of praying exactly in obedience to these Scriptures for the healing of the land, for the restoration of the people and of the city and of the temple. Now Daniel just has a time frame. It's soon. And Daniel says, it's time to really get serious. Then Daniel turns Scripture into prayer. Daniel is going to take these promises that he's read in Jeremiah from God and he's going to turn it back to God and ask God to do what God has already promised that He will do. That is a biblical thing to do, by the way. Uh, in the, the Lord's Prayer that was 
just quoted earlier, Jesus told us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Now God has already promised that the kingdom's going to come. But we are supposed to pray and say, God, bring it on. It is biblical to take Scripture and to turn it around and pray it back to God by claiming the promise that He has made or by turning it into a prayer request for someone else or ourselves or simply turning it back in worship to God. And that's what moves Daniel here is the Scripture moves him to act in prayer. I think it was Spurgeon, that great preacher, who said that God loves to be believed in meaning that He loves for us to take what He says and to take Him at His Word and just put it right back to Him and said, okay, God, You said, make it happen. Second thing I notice about Daniel's prayer is that Daniel prays intensely. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He purposefully and thoughtfully prepares Himself for serious prayer. He's deliberate about it. He says, I turned my face to the Lord. That means He focuses in. He zeroes in. You know, it's where somebody has something, they're speaking, and you just turn your face and you zero in because you want to know what is it they're saying. Well, Daniel zeroes in to say, God, I need to, we need to talk. He turns his face to the Lord. He's, he's intensely focused. He's thoughtful. Secondly, I notice he's determined. He, the word, he says he seeks to seek God. He's seeking Him by prayer. That word to seek means to strive earnestly. He's passionate about this. He says he does it with fasting. Fasting to go without food for a period of time. It demonstrates the priority of prayer. There's nothing more important. Not even food. Not going to let any distractions get in the way between me and God, including taking time to eat. This is priority. By the way, some people ask, is fasting for the church today? And the answer is yes. Is it a requirement? No. But is it something that is good and worthwhile and valid? Yes. Uh, in Matthew, where Jesus is, is there, the, some of the disciples of John come and say, Hey Jesus, I've got a question. We've noticed your disciples don't fast. They, they were followers of John the Baptist who was preaching before Jesus and, and uh, I think they're ready to change groups. Because we fast and you don't. And maybe we want to be one of your disciples and eventually they all be, do become Jesus' disciples. But that's another story. It's not because of the food. Here's the point. Jesus' answer was this. When the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. You feast. Because it's the wedding, but there's a day coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. In other words, when Jesus was here, there was no reason to fast. But while He's gone, there's a time for fasting and praying for intense prayer until the day He comes back. Notice He wears sackcloth. He sets aside His royal robes, His designer clothes. I'm sure He had those as the second guy in the kingdom. 
take on the rough cloth of sackcloth, which shows humility, which shows abject need. I am needy. I have nothing. I am poor. I'm impoverished. That's the implication of sackcloth. It's humility. And he also wears ashes, the symbol of grief, brokenness. Daniel says, I am broken. I am needy. And I am intent to be focused for serious prayer. This is strange to us because this is not the way most of us pray. For some of us, not very often. For some of us, it is never how we pray. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes aren't required, any of them or all of them, for serious prayer. But... It also is not wrong. It's not unbiblical. It obviously wasn't Daniel's typical prayer routine either. But I gather from this, I get the impression that this wasn't the first time he had fasted and prayed and put on sackcloth and ashes. By the way, this wasn't some public display. There's no record that he was doing this to get attention Rather, it appears that this was a private experience. The only people who know about this are Daniel and God because who else needs to know? It's exactly what Jesus said in the passage Pastor Aaron was reading earlier as we began the service in Matthew 6 where He says, when you pray, go and pray in secret in your closet. And if you fast, He goes on to say, Pastor Aaron didn't read those words, but He goes on, when you fast, Don't go around looking like you're fasting. (laughs) No, he says, wash your face. Look good. Put clean clothes on. Make your fasting and your praying and all these things something between you and God. Not something you do so that other people know how holy you are. That's not ever, as Pastor Ian said at the beginning of the service, it's about being genuine. It's about being real. How about putting on shows? Thirdly, the third key element I see here in Daniel's prayer is that he has a contrite heart. Earlier we read, our scripture reading was from Psalm 51. Don't know if you noticed this. Usually Rob reads my mind and he gets scriptures and songs that just track exactly with what we're doing. He had the right passage or the right psalm, but he missed a verse. He selected some verses and missed one verse that's really key there in Psalm 51, at least key to my message this morning. It says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The prophet Isaiah says similarly over in Isaiah 66, God is speaking and he, God says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, if we want God to listen to us, if we want God to hear us, what God looks for is a contrite heart. And may I say that is so foreign, it is so far from our modern culture and our modern mindset that most of us, if I put you on the spot, 
could not give a definition for contrite. It means, by the way, intensely sorrowful, extreme remorse over sin. Extreme remorse over sin. Intensely sorrowful because of the guilt of sin. That's what contrite is. He lays it out here in this psalm. We won't take the time to... Well, I, I kind of... We've got to read some of it here to get the flavor of it. But he does it in... We very quickly say this. We want God to listen to us. And we want to have powerful and effective prayer. And we love this verse from the book of James. Don't you love this? The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You've probably quoted that verse or read it many times, right? We love that. Because we all want to have... Powerful and effective prayer, right? We tend to miss the first half of that verse. Actually, the first two-thirds of that verse. This is the rest of the verse. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You get how that fits together? To have righteous... Excuse me, to have powerful and effective prayer, we need to be righteous. And to be righteous, we need to have a contrite heart that is eager to confess and recognizes our abject sinfulness and need before God. Powerful, effective prayer is connected to a contrite heart. And so as we go through Daniel's prayer, in these next verses, a key feature that you'll see over and over again is this. We have sinned. And that's really shocking because Daniel, we noted when we began this study, is one of those few people in the pages of Scripture who gets much space at all in the pages where there is not one sin attributed to this man, not one flaw attributed to this man, not one failure attributed to this man. And God Himself, you look it up, Ezekiel chapter 14, twice in that chapter, puts Daniel in with three guys, one of three guys whom God is kind of holding up as the most righteous people who ever lived. And this guy says, we've sinned. He owns the sin of Israel, and it was pretty despicable, the things that Israel did. And Daniel says, that's us. By the way, that's a mark of a godly person. Godly people aren't sitting around pointing out to you how holy and righteous they are. The truth is, as we look at Scripture, godly people sin less. The closer you get to God, the less you sin. But the more acutely you are aware of how sinful you are. And so Daniel, this righteous guy, says, God, we are so wrong. I'll show you some of the things he says about who we are. And... You get the Apostle Paul, obviously a godly man, far more godly than most of us, and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Three stark contrasts Daniel gives to show just 
what their sin was like. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets who spoke in Your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. He says, God, You are faithful. God is faithful. God, You keep Your covenant. God, You are faithful in Your love. Your love never quits. But we aren't. He lists a bunch of different words for sin. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've done wrong. He's from Arkansas. We acted wickedly. We rebelled. All to illustrate that we are guilty of every kind of sin and in huge quantities. We've done it all. He says, we refuse to listen to your warnings through your prophets. Nobody listened to you. Nobody listened to your prophets. Not our kings, not our princes, not our leaders, not our fathers, not the average Joseph. That was kind of a joke. It was just really bad. (laughs) He goes on, verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we've sinned against you. He says, you are God. You are righteous. Matter of fact, you own it. He says, you, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. You own it. You are just and right in everything you do. Us, well, us on the other hand, we own something too. To us belongs open shame. Our guilt is undeniable. There is no hiding it. There is no conceal and carry for guilt. Because you can't conceal it. It is exposed. We are treacherous. We have broken faith. We've broken trust. We are traitors, every one of us. Verse 9, To our Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us through by His servants the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey Your voice. And the curses and the oaths that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have now been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He's confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers and brought on us this great calamity. And I'll stop there. God is merciful and forgiving. He graciously gave time and time and more time. He gave opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But we continued in rebellion. We continued in disobedience. And so, God confirmed His Word. He did what He said He would do. He had to do what He said He would do because He promised it. And He brought on us this great calamity. But here's the really astounding part, verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it against us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works He's done, and we haven't yet obeyed His voice. His thing is, He says this, the astounding thing, is that you warned us, you warned us, you warned us, then you did it, and you've done it, and here we are in the middle of it, and we still yet have not repented. 
Does that sound like your kids, by the way? <laughs> Does it sound like us? Oh, he's warned and warned and warned and threatened, and then he does it, and they still haven't repentant, repented. God is merciful, but we haven't sought his mercy. He's been praying all this time, and Dan, Daniel hasn't asked for a single thing. Now it's time to ask. What Daniel has been saying is, we nobody yet has done what you asked us to do and what you told us to do. And God, here I am. If nobody else does it, I'm going to start. It's going to start right here with me. We have sinned. Then he begins his request, and he has one request. It's verse 19. I'm just going to summarize. The verse 19 has a one-line summary that I think sums up all the verses from 15 to 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Daniel pleads for mercy. God, forgive us. Forgive us, verse 15, for the sake of your reputation. God, you brought your people out of Israel. Your name was exalted everywhere. You made a name for yourself when you brought us out of Egypt. If you go back and read Exodus, every nation, everywhere they went, had heard of everything God had done in the miracle of bringing the Jews out of Egypt and bringing them to the land. He said, you did all that, but then we sinned. Because of our sin, your anger is right. It's just that I'm asking now, Lord, would you turn it away, please? For the sake of your reputation, because your city, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword. Verse 17, would you do this for the sake of your glory? Your sanctuary is desolate and in ruins. Would you make your face shine again on the sanctuary? In other words, put your favor on the, on the temple that it might be rebuilt and restored so that once again people will give you the honor and the worship that you deserve. Verse 19, he says, Lord, would you do this for the sake of your people, the people who bear your name? Because when the people who bear your name are disgraced, God, you're disgraced. He says, verse 18, don't do this because of our righteousness because we don't deserve it. God, I'm asking you to do this simply because of your mercy. Guys, that's a contrite heart. God answers Daniel's prayer. By the way, none of us deserves God's favor. But through Jesus, God gives His grace and His mercy to anyone who comes humbly to Him and as the old proverb says, throws themselves on the mercy of the court. That's what Jesus said about that, that sinner, the tax gatherer in the, in the temple, you remember, who just came and just all he did was say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home forgiven. Anyone who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're there this morning, if you haven't ever come to him and said, Lord, I need your mercy, I need your grace. He invites you to do that today. God answers Daniel's prayer. Indeed, it wasn't long after this, King Cyrus issues a decree that allows all the Jews to return back to Judea. Even as they arrived in Babylon in stages, in waves over a couple of decades, the going back and the rebuilding occurs in some waves over a few decades. But God did exactly what He said He would do. 
But as God often does, the immediate answers He gives to our prayers, or even the long-term answers, often they are quite surprising and not at all the what we expected. Have you noticed that? God doesn't answer our prayers often the way that we expect. Daniel is praying, and he's praying for the restoration of the people back to the land, and God gives a surprising answer. We're going to focus on it next week, but I'll give you a quick preview. While he's praying... He doesn't even get to finish his prayer. He's interrupted by an angel. Gabriel pops in the room. And Gabriel says, Dan, oh man, greatly loved. I love that greeting. He says, when you first started to pray, a word went out. God answered Before you even got the rest of your prayer out, you started praying. God knows what you're going to say. (laughs) He always does, but why do we pray if God knows what we're going to say? Because God said so. Pray. When you first started to pray, a word went out from God, and I've come to bring that word to you. It's a word of insight and understanding. And what he does is deliver to Daniel a word of prophecy from God about the people going back to the land, and, here's what's cool, a countdown to the Messiah. When the Messiah will show up. And looking past that, even towards the end of all things, the ultimate fulfillment of all prophecy, it's all in just a few verses here at the end of this chapter. That's what we're going to look at next week because not only does it kind of give just a a look at this marvel of a prophecy, but it will set us up marvelously to worship on the next two weeks for Palm Sunday as we celebrate the arrival of Messiah and as we celebrate His crucifixion and resurrection the following Sunday because it's actually pictured there. So I hope you'll be here next week. You might say, Pastor, all this is kind of cool, but ultimately, what does this have to do with me? The reality that you might wonder is this. Could my prayers be answered in a powerful way? Can an average person like you or me really pray powerfully? I mean, isn't this just something for a guy like Daniel who was like, perfect? You know? And I go back to, I read earlier from James 5, where he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The next phrase is this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The, power, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man, what's it say? Just, did you get that part? Just like us. And then he goes on to say, and God answered his prayers in a powerful and effective way. So I ask the question, can you and I pray powerfully and effectively? Nobody wants to answer. Let's try this again. Can you and I pray powerfully and effectively? Why do you know that? Because pastor says so? Uh Uh-uh. It's the Word of God says so. It's not going to be because you and I are awesome people. It is going to be because we come to an awesome God in serious prayer motivated and moved by the Scripture. 
praying intently with a contrite heart. See, he's laid it out here. This is what a powerful prayer this is what makes prayer powerful when we pray like that. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear this. First of all, because a bunch of us rarely pray, pray at all. When we do, we pray thoughtlessly, not without thinking much, without preparing much. We seldom take Your Word and pray back to You what You have committed to do and ask You to do it. But that is something You call us to do biblically. And we struggle with having a contrite heart. Father, the fact is our pride often puffs us up and we tend to think that we're better than others. Whether we're not as bad as most or we're not as bad as them. Lord, may we learn from this example. Daniel was an extraordinary man and I don't know if any of the folks here measure up. I know I don't to his example. But Lord, may we learn from it. May we become more effective and powerful prayers. Because Father, we live in a world that is in desperate need of powerful and effective prayer. There are people who are lost apart from Jesus Christ. They need to hear the truth. They need to come to faith in Him. We live in a world that is longing to be as Paul says in Romans, the world longs for the day when it will be restored. The curse will be lifted. Father, make us into people who pray. For our good, for the good of those who do not know You, and most especially for the glory that is due to You. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.